0: From the Cairo Radio Newsroom in Seattle, I'm Dave Ross, and these are the Ross Files. As you may have heard, a group of children is suing the government, both state and federal, on grounds that it should be doing more to protect them from climate change. And we have the senior attorney, Andrea Rogers, who's been representing this case, And first of all, you filed this in 2015 against the Obama administration, right? That's correct. On what grounds?
1: Well, our case is a constitutional climate change case. So we are arguing that the federal government, in developing and perpetuating an energy system that's based on fossil fuels, they have done that knowingly. They have known of the climate danger for over 50 years and in spite of that they have perpetuated this energy system that results in dangerous levels of greenhouse gas emissions that are harming the children.
0: So is this well, where does the constitution say that you know you can sue over something like that?
1: Yeah, well under the 5th amendment you have the constitutional rights to life, liberty and property and you can't enjoy a, a right to life without a stable climate system and we're supported in our litigation by a number of scientific experts, some of the best climate scientists in the world. Who will testify about the scientific and critical importance of having a stable climate system?
0: Is this the same thing as what suing the tobacco companies for knowingly selling cigarettes? Or
1: no, you know, in this case, we're not seeking damages, ah. um, so it's different than that. We're seeking injunctive relief in the form of a climate recovery plan. So our case is really similar to litigation like Brown versus Board of Education or other civil rights litigation that required governments to reform the systems that were causing the constitutional injuries.
0: Wow. So in other words, you could conceivably force the government to adopt the uh, Green New Deal.
1: Well, or no. Or something like it. Yeah, courts will never write the policies. What they will do is they will declare the constitutional violations, and then it will be up to the defendants to come up with the policies and plans that meet the constitutional standard that the court declares. Probably what's in the forefront of most Washingtonians' mind is the school funding litigation in McCleary versus State. And that's exactly what the Washington Supreme Court did. They directed the legislature to amply fund public education, but they didn't tell them how to do
0: that. Okay, but in that case, you could point to how students were actually harmed by the current system, couldn't you?
1: Oh, absolutely. And we have plenty of stories of harm in our Juliana case as well. We represent children. One child lives in Louisiana She's been flooded out of her home a number of times from um, rain events that have been directly attributed to climate change. Their severity has been attributed to climate change. We represent a young man who lives on a barrier island off the coast of Florida, and his home will no longer exist uh, within 20 to 30 years. I represent uh, children in the Pacific Northwest who've suffered tremendously from the wildfire smoke that now shrouds our city it's become every august we have that they've had there's been advisories that they must stay inside their home they've had school canceled camps canceled so the harms that these children are experiencing are real and the science is really clear that what we're experiencing is the tip of the iceberg and it's going to get even more severe Uh, the more that we continue to increase greenhouse gas emissions.
0: Mm. You'll have to work fast because the tip of that iceberg is uh, quickly disappearing. But, I mean, isn't this sort of like suing over the laws of physics?
1: No, not at all. So we have a tremendous amount of historical evidence in our case that shows the federal government has known for over 50 years that climate change was happening and would happen if we continued our dependence on fossil fuels. And in spite of that knowledge, they rejected the science and continued to subsidize fossil fuel projects, Um, We get a tremendous amount of fossil fuels from our federal public lands. The federal government sets energy efficiency standards. You can't buy a car in this country and drive it unless it's been certified by the federal government as meeting federal standards. They control that whole system. And there were many opportunities throughout history where the government could have transitioned to renewable energies, and they did not take those opportunities. They were knowingly rejected. One of our experts in our case, his name is Gus Speth and he was in the Carter administration in one of the first uh, Council on Environmental Quality offices. And his uh, testimony goes through how each administration had these moments in time in which they could have uh, transitioned off of this. How can you prove that a
0: particular policy would have stopped a particular storm or a particular flooding event?
1: So what they say is you don't need to tie a particular molecule of carbon dioxide to an injury to a particular plaintiff. What our burden is, is that we need to show that the federal government substantially caused and contributed to climate change and that climate change is responsible for the youth's injuries. In our case, the federal government does not dispute that the children are being injured by climate change and Mm -hmm. that the types of injuries they're experiencing are essentially signature harms of climate change. But what they dispute is that they should not be held accountable their conduct in causing climate change.
0: Isn't there a concept in law called an act of God, which presumes that some things are just arbitrary? Whether there is an overall trend is one thing, but the idea that a uh, a catastrophic storm or flood, uh, that a, a person or an entity could be held responsible for something like that, doesn't that defy tradition?
1: we are not dealing with an act of God, we're dealing with an act of humanity. Um, And I think that's very clear from particularly the most recent national climate assessment that came out of the Trump administration in the end of 2018. It's very clear that what we're experiencing is human-caused climate change. So we no longer have just natural uh, devastating events. They're somehow and in some way influenced by the new climate system that we have right now. And the science on this is developing really quickly. And there's a field of science called attribution science where they're actually looking at the extent to which certain uh, storms have been influenced by climate change, and they're able to do that um, with quite some specificity. It's really exciting to see that science developing.
0: If this goes forward, though, why couldn't this be extended, for example, to statistical studies which indicate that 8 million people a year die because of industrial pollution? I mean, that would shut down the economy. You, could you charge corporations with murder?
1: Uh, Yes, corporations can be charged with murder, but the situation that we're dealing here is the government has an obligation not to undertake activities that knowingly violate the constitutional rights of its people. So if the government were pouring poison into its water system, knowing that that poison would harm people, we do have a constitutional claim for that, and that's what makes America great. We're one of the few nations where you can bring a constitutional claim to vindicate your individual constitutional rights. That can't happen in most other countries. But the claim needs to rise to the level of a constitutional violation. So there's a number of different cases that hold that you don't have a right to be free from pollution or you don't have a right to a clean environment. But how we've articulated the fundamental right here is this is a fundamental right that's necessary for your right to life.
0: But this is not really comparable to pouring poison into the environment. There's an intentionality to put like if a terrorist were to poison a, a reservoir, for example, clearly a criminal act because all the poison is designed to do is kill people. But the poison we're talking about here, if we're talking about carbon dioxide, is a byproduct of things that have actually benefited humanity, right?
1: Yes, in many ways that's true. But again, you know, they understood the consequences of fossil fuels. Well, we understood in in this but country.
0: not when we first began doing this. Oh, right?
1: like in the 1800s. Yeah, the basic scientific principles were known. Now, the danger of the accumulation that we experienced, that became to be known about 50 years ago. So you're looking in the early 65 is really one of the first reports that you see coming out of the Johnson administration where they really recognized this as a catastrophic mm-hmm. A dangerous situation for humanity. And so many of the reports that you start seeing in the 70s and the 80s, there's many government reports that we're talking about at that time, you know, getting off of coal by 2000 because of the accumulation of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. So the basic scientific principles have been known. There's a trick question that that some climate professors ask their students on the first day of class. They'll say, you know, what, what are the major climate change science developments that have occurred since 1979? And the reason it's a trick question is because there are none. The basic scientific principles have been known that long. Um, And then there's been these alternatives, you know, there's been these moments where they understood, particularly the Carter administration had some very, you know, very strong goals with respect to solar energy.
0: But at best, couldn't you only convict the U.S. of partial liability? Because after all, carbon does not stay put and we're not the only nation that produces it.
1: Absolutely. There's a number of other nations that are causing and contributing to climate change, and that's why we're filing litigation in other jurisdictions as oh, well. Oh, I see. So this you're, who, is certainly, who
0: else are you going after?
1: Yeah, we have cases in jurisdictions such as Pakistan and India. Um, Sri Lanka will be coming online China? soon. China's much more difficult situation, but again, you know, I think the United States, you know, we're a pretty amazing country, and we play a significant leadership role. And I think if we start... Um, to focus on sincerely decarbonizing our economy, um, I think it's pretty clear that other nations will follow our lead.
0: Which is carbon zero, isn't it?
1: In order to stabilize our climate system, we need to reduce global atmospheric carbon dioxide concentrations to about 350 parts per million by the end of the century. And in order to preserve our ice sheets in the long term, that number is probably lower, Uh, but the minimum is about 350 parts per million.
0: You're asking for basically a complete change in how we get around because you couldn't have internal combustion engines anymore. You have to go out of electricity. You have to have uh, solar panels everywhere. You'd have to have windmills. You might have to compel nuclear power. I mean, nuclear power is the only zero-emission technology out there.
1: There's a number of different pathways how you decarbonize the United States, you know, and there's pathways that include nuclear. There's pathways that don't include nuclear, and we have experts who have evaluated all of those pathways. But what's exciting is that they conclude that they're technically and economically feasible. The most recent study found that decarbonizing the United States in line with a 350 parts per million trajectory would increase GDP by about 2 to 3%, which is within the normal range of what we have historically paid for energy. And the economic benefits are tremendous.
0: So you're not just doing this strictly out of idealism. You think there is an actual practical solution.
1: Oh, well, absolutely. And, you know, one of our lead experts in our case is Dr. Joseph Stiglitz. He's one of the world's uh, leading economists. He's a Nobel Prize winner, um, and he makes the case very clear that the economics support this kind of remedy.
0: And you're prepared to argue this before the Supreme Court of the United States?
1: Absolutely. We've been to the Supreme Court twice now. Um, justice Kennedy, in his last act as a justice, the last day of his. Uh, Uh, Sitting as an active justice, he allowed the case to proceed to trial. Um, We were stayed by Chief Justice Roberts 10 days before we were to start trial, and that stay was lifted. Um, So we're prepared to go back to the Supreme Court. We know we will go back there.
0: When do you think you'll get a hearing?
1: Um, well, it will depend on what the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals does. We argue this case in, before the Ninth Circuit on uh, Tuesday, June 4th in Portland, Oregon at 2 o'clock p.m. It will be live streamed. Our last argument was one of the most most watched uh, cases that were argued. We even had 2,000 more viewers than the, the Trump Muslim ban argument. Wow. So it will be watched by many. It's it's a very exciting constitutional case.
0: Must see Court TV. Absolutely. Andrea Rogers is senior attorney at Our Children's Trust. Andrea, thank you very much. Thank you. And by the way, Andrea Rogers' colleague who will be arguing that case before the Ninth Circuit Court will be going up against an attorney for the government by the name of Jeffrey Bossard Clark, who is a Trump appointee and who is described by the Sierra Club as a climate denier. So that should be a pretty interesting hearing. Remember that when there's a longer version of the interviews on Seattle's Morning News, you can usually find it right here in the original form, unconstrained by the limitations of a live broadcast. And you can subscribe so that when someone says, did you hear what was on Seattle's Morning News? You can say, not only that, I heard the part that wasn't on Seattle's Morning News. So my advice is to subscribe. And then when we talk to an author, a politician, an entrepreneur, an artist, a scientist, a teacher, a journalist, a celebrity, you'll hear every word. I'm Dave Ross. Thanks for tuning in.